Let's take up our Bibles and turn to the narrative of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in Matthew, beginning at verse 35 of chapter 27. Going to consider one event of the crucifixion or associated with the crucifixion. Reading the whole narrative, or at least most of it, will remind us of just what has been occurring here when they crucified our Lord. Matthew 27, verse 35, the Word of God. Then they crucified him and divided his garments casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there, and they put up over his head the accusation written against him, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who uh, who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross." Likewise, the chief priests, also mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth quaked and the rocks were split And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. That's far as far as we'll read. I want to consider with you this one event of the cross recorded in all three of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the rending of the temple veil. 
Verse 51 is where Matthew has this in Matthew 27. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What do we say about the crucifixion of our Savior? I've been preaching for 30 plus years and I, I think every time it, it gets harder and, and harder. And it's not simply because I've preached it all before and how to be fresh. But it's simply myself facing the fact that I'm, I'm, I'm at a loss for words, believe it or not. And in a way, everyone ought to be at a loss for words. You point this, or you, you turn to this event. For surely, it's a shameful thing. And I say it's not far from the truth to say that this is the lowest point of all civilization. We think it's bad now. But I believe that all the badness of this generation in the 21st century comes from the badness of the first century, where sinners said good riddance to God. That's what was happening. And where the very first sin, denying the word of God and the truth of God, was now seen in mankind and the whole lot of us was there, saying no to this man, this God in human flesh revealed. So it's man showing he's far from God here in Calvary and in the dark, ignorant of God. But then you have Jesus himself on the cross, helpless, we think, and seems a part of it all, a victim of the wicked men and the women and the children. And if the world is showing it's forsaken of God, it's the truth of truth as well that Jesus is forsaken of God. He's the one who cries out this in the fourth word. And... If the world is showing its darkness, Jesus himself is overwhelmed by the darkness of it all. And in the great eclipse, the great miracle of the darkness of that noon, that high noon, those hours of darkness, it's God's wrath covering him, plotting out the light of the world who dies for the sins of his own. So civilization, whatever you want to call it, mankind, society, not a Western civilization, not a first world type of thing, but the whole world is there at the lowest point of showing its distance from God Almighty its darkness, its animosity. And Jesus in the midst. What is striking 
is that it's precisely at this point where God is speaking the loudest of the things he's always intended to do. What we have here is God shouting, God crying, God groaning in his son's groans. And behold, something comes to pass that is wonderfully significant for God's plan. The low point of civilization is the high point of God and his love and his wisdom. The way out of the greatest mess, our greatest mess, our sin, our guilt. And it's symbolized by a mysterious event that occurred at the death of Jesus, the rending of the veil of the temple in two from top to bottom. One has called this the the greatest miracle of Calvary, aside from the atonement, greater than the earthquake, greater than anything else, the rending of the veil. Not sure. Not sure you can compare those miracles. But certainly it's a great mystery, and part of the mystery is that there's no explanation for this. It just simply says, does the text here and in, Math, in Mark and Luke The veil of the temple was rent around the time that Jesus died. Well, this I say is precisely when God is doing something in this decadent civilization and he's advancing his own civilization and glory. You see, because here's a foundation being laid for the church for you and for me, something to stand on. And the foundation of this advanced civilization called the Church of Jesus Christ, the Church of the Blood, the Church of the Crucified One, the Church that has a message, the Church that has hope. For we understand here, and this is the significance of the rending of the veil, The new thing is called the new covenant that God is now beginning. Marked by the restoration of sinners to God and light in the dark. So the decadent civilization is far from God and in the dark. This new one is near to God and in the light. So here in the 31st year, whatever it is I'm preaching this, Come with me, will you, to Calvary and ponder anew the goodness of Good Friday and something that's revealed in the rending of the temple veil. And I would call this this temple veil advancement or going through the veil forward. Think that applies to you today? Want to go forward in life? That would be near to God, and that would be walking in the light. So what advance is there? What, what forwardness is all about this? And then our advance. How do we gain from this?
in the best sense of the word. Simply put, the rending of the veil of the temple signifies we are led into the presence of God. That's the significance of the rending of the veil of the temple. The veil is the veil. Uh, there's a definite article there, not any, any veil. There were other veils in the temple, even in Herod's temple, which was kind of an exaggeration of Solomon's temple, all kinds of things that God had not told Solomon or David to, to build the temple by were in Herod's temple. But the Jews still used it, and the veil was one of the most significant parts of the temple. It's a reference to the fabric that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. There were different courts in the temple, big church, big, big uh, environment for worship, and there were different pieces of furniture. There was the outer court, the court of women. There was the holy place, the altar of incense, and the candelabra, and the priests would go in there and minister. And then there's the holy of holy places, and that is the sacred place. And that was separated from the rest of the temple, all of it, by this veil. And that veil, we'll talk about the size of that, but the veil in its significance signified the spiritual barrier between God, the holy God, and sinners. And even heaven and earth, the distance, the chasm between God and sinners. This is what we need to understand of Calvary, and then we can go and understand the gospel. Then, Sin separates us from God as we are in Adam. Sin separates God from us as he is in heaven and we are in Adam. Isaiah the prophet in chapter 59, verses 1 and 2 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. This separation of God and sinners is the problem of all, all humanity. The veil at the same time that it signifies barrier is movable, and it signifies by its movability the way to God. It's through the veil. It's not a thousand-foot-thick concrete wall. It's a veil. However significant it is as a barrier, it's not a permanent sort of barrier. And we know from the Old Testament, and this is where we go, and this is where Matthew goes consistently in his his gospel, he goes to the Old Testament to prove what is being affirmed and fulfilled in Jesus. But we know from the Old Testament that once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter into the holy place through the veil being pushed to the side. 
And he'd come there with the blood of an animal and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, and that would be atonement for the people. But that veil was a barrier, great, big, bold barrier. The veil, the veil. There in Israel of all the places in the earth was nevertheless this reminder of the holy God. And in the Old Testament, the Shekinah presence, the glowing presence of God would have been there, but we understand that that was not there anymore in Herod's time in the first century. Nevertheless, the veil and the distinction between the holy of holies and the holy place signified there's a holy God. And with him we have to do. And there's only one way to God through blood and the sprinkling of blood on what was called the mercy seat, the hilasterion, the place of propitiation where God's wrath would be turned away and sinners would find access to God. So a barrier, but also a way to worship. In the first century, Herod's temple, this veil was significantly larger than in in Solomon's temple and in the tabernacle. Solomon's tabernacle or temple was a 40-cubit high veil. Uh, Excuse me, uh, 40 foot high. But here, at Herod's temple, it was about 60 feet high, 40 cubits high, if, if we can get a cubit correct, but very high and very thick, four to six inches thick, we're told, with purple and, and, and gold and fine-twined linen, and there were angels interwoven into patterns on the veil, similarly to the angels guarding and overlooking the cherubs overlooking the mercy seat with their wings overspread and similar even uh, to the angels guarding the way to paradise. No way to paradise or paradise regained except through the blood, except through the blood. So once a year, a very limited time, one time a year, One person, the high priest, must come with the blood. And if he didn't, we are told the law required that he die. Or, we don't know this, if he disobeyed the law and nobody knew it, God himself would take care of the business of execution. You just don't look at the holy things of God because no one shall see the face of God even or any of those holy things that he has proscribed from the people and live. So, the holiness of God. Now, there's that veil. Rent at the time of Jesus' death. Torn in two from top to bottom. Now, did this accompany the earthquake and the splitting of the rocks were not told? as if one was the occasion for the other, or the other the occasion for the one. But suffice to say, this tearing of the veil 60 feet from the top to the bottom was not of man, it was of God. 
And you see, it had to be because there was something new that would be revealed here. And, and this time of Calvary and this event of Calvary is this great event of revelation, which by definition is an unfailing. The eyes that were blind are now made to see, and that which impeded our sight of something beyond our eyes is is now out of the way. And the people who understand this and are given to see this understand that the revelation is nothing less or different than this. The rending of the veil symbolizes that the way to God is now open through the blood of Jesus. That's what Good Friday is all about. The way to God is open. Not possibly, not probably, but definitely. As sure as the temple veil is ripped in two by God, top to bottom, so is the way to God now open. And this is all because of Jesus, of course. Jesus is the way, and the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except by him. But surely, everyone who comes by Jesus does, does come to the Father. This is a new and living way. And some have even surmised that here, remember the veil, children, and all of us, had all of these cherubs on it, these angels, the rending of the veil may, may as well signify that the way back to paradise, which was guarded every which way by these flaming swords or of, of angels, is now open itself. And so there's this way back to the felicity of life with God and serving God and and a kind of sinlessness, a sinless state, a sinless condition, all because of what Jesus does and his blood does, effects, accomplishes. So he says it's finished, and we are justified by his death, and we rise with him. The advance here is remarkable. Here's all this decadent society, and they're, they're doing away with Jesus, and they're having their, their way, and they're thinking they're going to the bank, and we got rid of this guy. We're going to get rid of anybody if we can get rid of Jesus, anybody who upsets the status quo, anybody who makes us as uncomfortable as he did. And God says, out of my way. That's what he's saying here. Out of my way. Everything out of my way. Not just you sinners, you, you ant-like sinners. How dare you defy me? But the law itself, out of my way. The guilt and the shame, out of my way. Hard hearts, out of my way. Your hard heart, my hard heart. Blast them in pieces like the rocks that split. You realize some, I was hearing this, there's lots of programs on this time of year, Good Friday. But one has observed 
earthquake evidence in and among the rocks around Jerusalem and has found that the rocks are split as could not occur in an ordinary earthquake along the seams. Somehow these rocks are split and there's evidence of this apparently in a way that's just impossible to explain except some extraordinary divine intervention. Well, yes. Remember, there's revelation here of God. Hebrews 9, let me read that with you, uh, is a good summary of, of what happened when the veil was rent. In Hebrews 9, Hebrews is all about Jesus, who's the better way. But the first nine verses, for example, then indeed even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary, think temple now, for a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. So that would be the holy place. And behind the second veil, the, another veil, the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all. That's what we're talking about here with the veil being torn. Which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now, when these things had been thus prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services, but into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, had to have blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance, the Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiness of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing, it was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. And then go to verse 11. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered into the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from uh, dead works to serve the living God? And... We'll stop there, but if you go to chapter 10, they're more elaborate and, and, and pointed. In verse 19, we read, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiness by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water, and so on. In other words, these passages and others in Hebrews remind us of the significance of the blood of Jesus. It used to be that there was this way. There was a high priest once a year, blood of bulls and goats sprinkled on a box, this 
symbolized forgiveness, but it could not accomplish it. So every year it had to be repeated, and there were thousands and thousands of other offerings for other sins. But this Day of the Atonement was the big one every single year, but had to be repeated, could not be effectual in bringing us to God and God to us. But Jesus' body is that altogether different way. His body, which also happens to be the temple, which is on the cross destroyed, but which is not destroyed, it rises again. But for our purposes and the purpose of the significance of the veil being torn, Jesus' broken body and blood is the new way, the living way, the abiding way, the way that will be forever for God's people to enter into the presence of God and not die, but live. Amazing. And this is all of God. This is what's revealed here. It's the God way. It was the God way in the Old Covenant, but in pictures and promises and people and earthly buildings and blood of animals. Now it's God's way in his son. Excuse me. Remember the top to bottom, beloved. That's significant. Top to bottom. No man could do this. No one got on a ladder and started cutting through the veil and then it was eventually split in two. God did this. God did this. At precisely the moment of Jesus' death, just before, just after, it makes no difference. It was intimately connected with the death. It wasn't just coincidence. And one wonders, of course, who saw it? Who saw it? Some have surmised that from Calvary, you could see the temple. I don't suspect that's accurate. But certainly, beloved, there were priests there in the holy place next, and they were officiating in about that time in the third hour, the ninth hour of the day, the evening offerings. They were there, and we'll speak of that presently. They might have been among the priests who were converted later in Acts chapter 6. The, there's a bunch of the priests that were converted. But somebody saw this, and someone realized, this is amazing, this is divine. And there were others, too, who were privy to some of this, and certainly to the earthquake. And Matthew says, one of them was a centurion, and there were others around guarding the body of Jesus. And it's said that as a result of what they saw, they so were in awe that... They feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. And that leads to my second and final point here. I talked about the advance. It's about the way being open to God now. There's access. There's, there's atonement made for sinners. But 
The question is, and I always say this in catechism, if that's Calvary there and there's the temple there and signifying the presence of God, and if that only signifies heaven and God's up there, how does this benefit from this cross get to us here? And how do we, who've gotten the benefits of the cross here, how do we go to heaven now? Because the first exhortation with regard to this temple veil being torn miracle is now you go into that temple. You go into that presence of God. That's almost the first exhortation of the entire book of Hebrews. Since there's this way that's been made for you, and there's this miracle for you to see and now to believe. Now you, draw near. Don't hold back. Don't let somebody do this for you. Children, don't let your parents just draw near to God and you just go to church and go along for the ride. Each of us, let us and each draw near to God. You see, as someone has written poignantly, before the veil was rent in two from top to bottom, it was death to go in. Now, it's death to stay out. Where are you? With full assurance, Hebrews says, confidence, show that the cross means something to you, in fact, everything. Draw near. That would be by faith, of course. There's nothing of a physical temple left. And if there is, and there is in Jerusalem, there is, and there's fighting over the territory, which is called the holy land, which is no longer holy. But we draw near by faith. We draw near by faith. We believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus. We draw near to God in in the light of Calvary, in the light in the revelation, the apocalypse, the unveiling that the veil covered. You see, about Christianity, there really, in one sense, is no mystery left. And the, uh, the splitting of the temple reminds us of this. Oh, there's mystery in the sense it's beyond us. Look, I just prefaced my remarks to this whole sermon by saying, I'm at a loss for words and the depth of these things, who can know? But from another point of view, we're in the light. This is the great advancement of an approach to God that's made not only possible or probable, but real and light. And a society of the born-again believers to whom Jesus means everything because Jesus thinks they mean everything. He loves them so. 
and they're different. Oh, they are. Oh, you are. You are. Oh, we don't feel like it all the time, do we? And how how little we make of Calvary and the death of Jesus. We make a lot of our death or when the doctor says, maybe you have cancer. And you can't get away from taking that very seriously. But how little do we really understand the significance of the death of Jesus, which means, beloved, we die no more. Really? Yeah, we die. Yes, it's a last enemy. But there's no sting. It's not wages we have to pay. Jesus paid them. And the wrath of God is borne out or born or burned out on Calvary. And really, there's nothing to interfere then with all of us going into the holy place of God. That's one of the beauties of the Reformation. It took seriously the doing away of the Old Testament and the priesthood of a few. You ever see what a precious gift that is? We believe the priesthood of all believers. We believe it's not once a year some high priest with some hat has to go in and do this and that and cite some incantations and maybe change by some miracle transubstantiation the things of this earth into things of heaven and all this. Oh, beloved, we're the holy nation, the the kingdom of priests, that each of us should show forth the praises of God in drawing near to God. And it's open now for Jew and Gentile. That's the significance of the veil being rent in two from top to bottom. And women, you know, there was a court of women. There's no more court of women. So the women and the men are equal before God. And we all go and worship God together. No, it's not equal outcome, but it's equal opportunity, is the Christian gospel. Meaning, Christ died for all sorts of people, and I'm looking at them, and you see them, you know them, all kinds of sinners. Men and women and children, Jew and Greek and Gentile and slaves and rich and all the and poor and whatever makes no difference to God. And that rending of the veil tells us that. All kinds of sinners covered by the blood, that's the one thing that has to be, are welcome to my presence. And that's our unity, isn't it? Our unity. Because when we go to the one place called God, like we're doing now, there's a fellowship. And we're forgiven, and we forgive one another. 
We, we let others go in the love of God. Oh, we don't overlook sin. But we're gentle and we're kind because if Calvary means anything, it means that God is gentle and God is kind. Even as he manhandles, divinely handles his son and mangles his body and he's cast into hell for us, we are exonerated, acquitted. All the sins you ever did or shall do, gone. Beautiful. And we unite with that and we have joy, don't we? Joy. This is the society of the forgiven, the society the advanced society here. It's not about technology. It's not about the government making barriers, for, well, barrier-free churches so you can get to the second floor. Beloved, Christianity makes it so that we get to heaven. That's a lot higher than the second floor. And even now, there's an elevation of spirit and Joy in the midst of dismal things and hope, hope. That's what I want to leave you with. Hebrews 6, I think verse 19 or some, something says, our hope is behind the veil. No, our hope is in God. That's what Good Friday is all about. It even was for Jesus, you know. Sometimes I think we... And I've been guilty of this. We look at Good Friday with grim eyes. Just about what a shameful, terrible sinner I am. Well, you know, it wasn't even just that for Jesus. As he's bearing sin for us. Because we read in the book of Hebrews that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. Joy was on his mind. May joy be on your mind. The joy of heaven, the hope of heaven. And may that joy and hope be an almighty, powerful force in your life to lead you from the cross and the marvel of that veil torn from top to bottom and your being led into the presence of God. May it be that which comforts you now and forever. As long as you live here and for eternity there. Amen. We thank you, Father, for the truth. Set us free from everything that hinders us from drawing near to you in living out of that truth, that powerful truth, that new and living way truth Thanks for Jesus. Thanks for your Holy Spirit leading our congregation into the word and now from the word to go our way rejoicing and looking forward to fellowshipping with you and one another on the Lord's day in your house. Amen.